Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. I'm Albert Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I'm also at the American Enterprise Institute and... And Yulia Zhoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University. And Radek Sikorsky, a former resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, we were going to get right. to that. You weren't, weren't going, going to escape that one. We were, we were going to get to that in a second. <laughs> so on our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today, as you already know, is Radek Sikorsky, member of European Parliament, former uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Poland, and most importantly, a former fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Radek, um, we were prompted uh, into inviting you on the program by your uh, speech on October the 11th at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, which was a sort of sequel to your earlier speech, which made rounds in you know transatlantic circles uh, a decade ago. Uh, I wonder if you could just tell us very briefly what your message for uh, for, for for German friends was. At that time in 2011, at the height of the euro crisis, I said that I'll be the first Polish foreign minister to say so, but I fear, but that I feared German power less than I feared German inactivity. If you remember, Germany was doing just enough at the last moment to prevent the collapse of the Eurozone, but didn't really lead from the front with arguably bigger costs of dealing with the Greek crisis than, than, than were necessary. And I'm afraid I could repeat those words about the current, current crisis too. Germany is doing more than most people think. It's a, it's a second or third sponsor of deliveries uh, to Ukraine. But of course, uh, that's in absolute terms. Per capita, much smaller countries do more. And the speech uh, back at the German Society for Foreign Policy in Berlin was to try to say what we think about it and to, to join the, the German debate about what should be done. And, um, well, first, I, I'm afraid I had to tell our German allies that uh, they got it wrong about uh, Putin, about Russia, and about uh, uh, German energy policy. We were very frustrated for many years by, uh, by their patronizing tones and by the fact that they didn't incorporate our uh, vital interests into their calculations. They put the economic interest, interest of German industry ahead of the geopolitical interest of all of Europe, particularly Central and Eastern Europe. And we now have the result. So my message to, to Germany, uh, you know, out of friendship, but, uh, but in, in earnest, is uh, you didn't listen to us then, listen to what we say now. And what we say now is that we need to uh, um, start rearming and we need to um, help Ukraine win this. Before we leave the, the topic of Germany, um, <laughs> it's hard to see that at least Mr. Schultz has uh, taken the message to heart. Indeed, uh, if we look at his recent statements and his upcoming trip to China, it looks like Germany is on the verge of repeating a similar mistake, uh, but on a global scale, quite remarkably since 
both the United States, uh, the rest of the uh, sort of Anglophone world, if you will, and indeed Eastern Europe uh, have, uh, you know, awoken to the dangers of boundless engagement with Beijing. It's hard to see that the German Zeitenwende has really uh, got much to it that's of, of value to liberty-loving peoples. Actually, I think uh, Chancellor Scholz is less of a problem than some others in his party. I think when he made that speech, he meant it, uh, but he did it without consultation and he um, went against the grain of opinion in his party. And, and events since then have been about overcoming the resistance of deep-seated thinking and also some uh, Russian influence. Um, but you're right on China. First of all, from uh, central Poland's point of view, or rather Poland's point of view, China is not a problem directly because we all we have with China is a huge trade deficit. So, so if they want to trade with us less, uh, that doesn't bother us too much. Our dependency on China is indirect. It is via Germany, via Poland, Slovakia, uh, Hungary, being subcontractors to the German, mainly uh, automobile industry. But, uh, but in general, you're of course right that Germany's dependence on Russia is in one sector, energy. Germany's dependent on China is in several sectors. But, you know, Germany's trade with China has been very, very lucrative. Uh, something like between 40 and 50% of German cars gets, particularly the, at the upper end, gets sold in China. It's a story of, you know, decades of huge profits and, and expansion. And it's um, not easy to find better markets. But what German uh, industrialists that I talk to uh, tell me is that Time matters. The problem with the uh, with the Russian crisis is that we've had to find alternative uh, sources of energy in a matter of weeks. Uh, it's quite it's one thing to suddenly cut off your markets. Quite another to stop making new investments. That's much easier. But yes, I think. Uh, uh, the high energy prices that we are having to pay uh, now that Putin has gone rogue should be a lesson to um, to to French shore to uh, to become less dependent and perhaps less, um, if I may point it put it uh, subtly, um, less greedy. On the note of Germany, um, before we move on to other topics, I'm also curious to ask you. Um, something specific, but in the framework of, let's say, the future of Europe, and specifically how you see Polish-German relations going. Um, and there's obviously many matters to the fact. Poland is becoming maybe the largest land force in uh, in Europe, and on the other hand, is are asking the government is asking for war reparations of Germany. And I keep hearing reports that both sides, Germany and Poland, and bilateral meetings or face-to-face -face have trouble communicating with each other. So can you tell us how you see currently and in the future this major impediment to European security going? It is a major impediment. It's real. Um, it's done for the crudest reasons of uh, internal politics. The, the current ruling party in Poland, the nationalist peace, finds that they've, they've managed to... Um, 
beat 30% of the population into a kind of nationalist fervor against uh, Russia with justification, but against allied Germany without justification. And that's how they think they will win the next election. They've sent a, a diplomatic note uh, that they claim is demands reparations. The word reparations doesn't appear in it. So it's pure internal propaganda. But, uh, but the ruling party is run by a fellow who doesn't speak any foreign languages, doesn't travel abroad, doesn't have a driver's license, doesn't have a bank account, is completely anachronistic, lives in the, in, 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 in the distant past. And 60% of the electorate of, of the current ruling party in Poland is, is old age pensioners, you know, people with roots in communist era propaganda against uh, Western Germany. But I think they will lose next um, uh, year's general election. We just had some very encouraging uh, opinion polls. And then we will need to fix our relationship, first of all, with uh, the European Union. You know, Poland is not getting EU money, not getting the recovery uh, plan money, but also paying a fine for not abiding by the rulings of the European Court of Justice of 1 million euros per day. I mean, it's nutty. I, 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 I can't describe it any other way. You know, Orban, who is, um, who, uh, who is the, um, the example to follow, is actually trying to uh, fix the relationship with the EU enough to get the money. And these guys are not even trying that. As a former defense minister, I have advised the current government that a two-front war is a bad idea, but they are not listening. If I, if I may um, just go back to that 2012 speech where you said that you feel German power less than its inactivity. Like in that context, at that time, it was taken as an argument for some sort of you know big bank federalization, major sort of push towards deeper integration, especially in the Eurozone. Now, when I read your speech from this October, from you know the same venue, German Council on Foreign Relations, you seem to be far more restrained, especially on the institutional side. So Chancellor Scholz has come out with this idea that we have to abandon unanimity in, uh, in the European Council. Uh, you push I'm quite, you know, it's a fairly sort of nuanced point. You, you sort of push against this notion. You, you, you know, well, no, uh, careful. I prefer, I do advocate a defense union and an energy union, but I but I do think that Germany first has to recover um, its credibility in foreign affairs before we can even discuss going to majority voting. Uh, because you know it was Germany that freelanced with fr uh, France on Ukraine, you know the Normandy formula, the Minsk formula, and and it, and they failed. Uh, they freelance to the exclusion of the interests of Central and Eastern Europe uh, and then failed. And so they are now telling us, give us your veto and the next time we'll do better. Well, sorry, I'm not convinced. Yeah, no, no, that, that's, a, that, 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 that's a fair point. But does that mean that really the sort of aspirations of you know certain number of Europeans for the EU to become a geopolitical actor in its own right, possibly you know, acting independently of the United States, other Western allies, like that, that like, if, if we sort of acknowledge that there is this lack of trust between EU countries, I mean, then that prospect becomes really a pipe dream, doesn't it? Well, but there are arguments for it. You know, we are lucky that uh, President Biden has taken on uh, Ukraine. He didn't have to. 
uh, and one wonders whether he would have done it if if the withdrawal for, from Afghanistan was a little more successful. But uh, you can't guarantee to me that uh, that that uh, you will not have another isolationist president. And then we can't, as Europe, be completely helpless uh, on our own periphery. So I think the argument for a for a second insurance policy uh, that is. European rather than transatlantic has actually been strengthened. Uh, the question is, are member states scared enough by Putin to actually do it? Not just talk about it, not just sign the treaty, which, which already says that we should be doing it, but actually to do it. You know, devote real political capital, real resources uh, to do it. Um, and the uh, same goes for the energy union. It's only now... Uh, you know, eight years after we started talking about it, the Commission says, well, yes, perhaps we should be buying gas in common as the European Union, the way we buy, we buy uranium. If we'd done it eight years ago, Putin couldn't be blackmailing us now, you know? Okay, Radek, let's, let's shift more directly to, to Poland and Eastern Europe. Having a second insurance policy you know, so I suppose one can never have too many uh, uh, insurance policies unless uh, you know you have other use for the funds. However, given the sort of both the the, the sort of um, uncertain state, I would say, even despite the great performance of the NATO alliance thus far, you have to wonder whether that's going to be durable post whatever post-Ukraine turns out to be. So particularly for Poland, but also for, for Eastern Europeans, you know, you have a range of choices between an EU arrangement that'll most likely be dominated by France and Germany, you know, particularly with the Brits out, or the NATO format and again, it's not a, an either-or choice. It's more a question of priorities. If if I were you, and certainly what we have heard from other East Europeans is that NATO and particularly the transatlantic connection remains the gold standard for them. And oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and 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 the U.S. has done more than I uh, was expecting. Actually, the EU has done more on this Ukraine uh, business that, that I expected. I didn't expect us, both of us, to freeze Russian uh, central bank reserves, for example. And, uh, and, and we have a great partnership where the United States mostly delivers uh, um, arms and we mostly deliver macroeconomic uh, uh, assistance. You know, uh, both sides play to this, their strength. But you cannot guarantee to me that uh, after your midterms, if there is Republican co uh, um, uh, control of Congress, that uh, the support will still be there. I hope it will. Some responsible Republicans say the right thing, but there are also some irresponsible Republicans. And you cannot guarantee to me that Mr. Xi Jinping uh, does not um, invade Taiwan, and then the, 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 the most of U.S. attention would be shifted there. Uh, because... Because for you, the Pacific is um, is arguably even more important, and you can't fight a two-front war. And then we in Europe would be left with this um, 
with this business mostly uh, to our own devices. And we should be ready for that moment. As you know, defense systems take a decade to develop. And we are completely unprepared. We are completely disarmed. Germany has 250 tanks. France has 240 tanks. Britain has under 200 tanks. Poland has already sent more tanks to Ukraine than Germany has. And the, the other reason why we should get more serious about European defense is that, you know, if Scholz actually carries out what he promises and spends 100 billion on defense, then Germany will start being a serious military power. Guess what then will happen? Mr. Kaczynski is already saying, before anything has happened yet, he's already saying, ooh, these Germans, I don't know whether they are rearming against Russia or against us. Think about what will happen when the Germans actually have a proper military. Uh, you know, it's one of the ancient uh, principles of Polish foreign policy formulated by our pre-war leader, uh, Marshal Piłsudski, that, that Germany is not a big problem for, for Poland. Because when Germany becomes too big or too, uh, too um, uh, thrusty, we immediately have, have allies. You know, Germany's neighbors will get worried. And the way to prevent it is to do a, at least a part of the German rearmament in a European formula. So as to make that process safe for Europe and safe for Germany. Well, as long as somebody rearms, you can you can put whatever flag you like <laughs> on it. That that's exactly what I what I want to ask you kindly to drill into. Um, the midterms are now, and you already told us what your main concern is about that. And as you say, rearmament takes a decade or longer. So, how does this war look like, and how does it end in this scenario? Well, this, of course, I don't know because I don't. We neither nine of us knows how misinformed Putin is and how far will his military establishment uh, allow him to go. Uh, you know, there is the nuke factor, there is the mobilization factor, there is the uh, Northern Front from Belarus factor. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we also don't really know yet uh, whether winter will favor the Ukrainians more or, or the Russians. The Chinese haven't really helped the Russians militarily yet. Good. Uh, whereas Iran has, right? So this is a conflict in which not all the resources have yet been brought to bear. I think it's very important for the Ukrainians to recover Kherson because that secures Odessa and, uh, and isolates the war to the... Um, South uh, Eastern Corner, uh, and um, w you know we don't know how much political maneuver uh, President Zelensky or indeed Putin have. You know, can Putin call it quits and survive in power? I don't know. I doubt it. But I think the same goes for Zelensky. You know, uh, I mean, in pre-mass society days, monarchs could give up territory and hope to fight another day or, uh, or, or, you know, this is much more difficult because you are giving up your citizens to be mistreated by, by a really nasty regime. And that's difficult. We also don't know how um, 
how consistent and determined um, both Washington and, and Brussels will be in supporting uh, the Ukrainian effort, which which is very expensive, you know, at a time of um, of uh, of inflation and uh, and possible recession. Putin certainly hopes that that, that Europeans will flag um, that uh, when the bills heating bills arrive this winter, uh, that public opinion particularly in countries where they don't really fear Russia, like Italy or Spain, you know, or France uh, or Germany, um, that that will have political consequences. We don't know. There's something to be said about this, this, this idea of letting your citizens be mistreated by a nasty regime, which is something that would be involved in any kind of you know, compromise that many people are calling for between, between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, you, you put it beautifully in, in your in your in your in your October 11 speech, when you say that there is never a shortage of pocket chamberlains willing to trade other people's freedom for their own peace of mind, it looks like you know a big factor in all this is is this fear of escalation that, that seems to be dominating you know much of the conversation in you know old European countries and to some extent in in America, and obviously this question of nuclear escalation in particular seems to be freaking people out. What do you tell to your Western European colleagues and friends who say that at all cost we must prevent, you know, a, 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 an escalation that would involve tactical nuke being deployed in Ukraine? You have better experts than me at AI on, uh, on, on nuclear policy. But I, from what I understand, it's not actually that easy to deploy um, battlefield uh, nukes uh, in Ukraine. First of all, we would, have not- we would have noticed, we would know that he's taking his um, uh, warheads out of storage in Russia and, and transporting them to, to the battlefield. And we would know with around a week's uh, notice. Secondly, neither his army nor his population are uh, equipped to operate in a in a contaminated uh, environment. Thirdly, um, winds tend to blow in Europe from west to east. Russia would be affected. Um, fourth, um, these tactical nukes, uh, you know, not it, you would need to use dozens of them. One or two uh, wouldn't do it because there are not no compact targets on the uh, on the front line. I mean. Targeting population centers is another matter. But if you're trying to win a battle, you know, one battlefield nuke, I'm told, um, destroys roughly five uh, square kilometers, so roughly one battalion. And lastly, I would think that having having um, uh, broken the taboo that you change don't change borders by force, the taboo that you don't start wars by on the pretext of protecting your compatriots on the other side, uh, which is what uh, has uh, uh, scandalized Europe. I think the taboo on, non, on, on, on not using nuclear weapons is a global one. And one hopes that China would then bring Putin to heel. And China is the one country that can really do it by threatening uh, to, to cut all, all links with Russia. So, you know, I, I, I hope um, uh, that, that Putin makes the calculation that, uh, that it's uh, not worth it. Uh, Radek, um, we don't always accomplish this, but we do on the Eastern Front. I know this is, uh, you know, uh, almost a contradiction in itself. Try to end things on a somewhat uplifting note. Um, I'd be interested in your view 
of, and let's assume uh, for the sake of happiness that Ukraine is successful at minimum in reclaiming its sovereign territory sometime the middle of next year. What do you imagine a post-war European security architecture should look like and will actually look like? Actually, it's, it's not difficult to be, to be optimistic. If anything like that happens, if, if Ukraine recovers the majority of its territory next year, then I think what we will have, uh, the failure and, uh, of the Putin regime and very possibly his removal uh, in a matter of uh, a year or two, uh, we will have had two new candidate members of the European Union, Ukraine and Moldova, and two, two new members of NATO, Sweden and Finland, and a Russia that has failed in recreating an empire, and therefore I, I pose a Russia that will actually start, uh, uh, perhaps under a different leadership, uh, reforming itself on the basis of, uh, of uh, um, the, the empire being impossible to recover. Uh, you know, this is a clear pattern in Russian uh, history. After the Crimea War lost reform, after the Russo-Japanese War reform, after the uh, huge casualties in World War One, first a liberal revolution, then Bolshevik revolution, and after the the, fa- the loss in um, uh, losing the Cold War, also reform uh, in the 1990s. So, um, so if Ukraine uh, wins this, I think we'll see the end of Putinism and a, and, a ref- and reform in Russia. Well, we would be uh, derelict in our duties if we didn't end this conversation by asking you about your now deleted tweet about the Nord Stream pipelines uh, uh, going back to September, in which you thanked the United States of America. Uh, which I think- well, it was mostly a joke. Um, I spent 20 years battling Nord Stream, and I was just so overjoyed that... Uh, that my enthusiasm went, went um, ahead of myself. But, um, and Twitter, as you know, is very dangerous in that way. Um, uh, but I still, uh, I still wonder if, if, if Putin uh, had done it. Because, you know, he spent 15 billion bucks on those pipelines, worked very hard for 20 years to have them, uh, uh, to have them uh, operate. And, and he was controlling them. So... Um, uh, so I still need to be persuaded that uh, that uh, that he'd done it. Uh, we have an investigation. Um, my working assumption is that if they find that it was Russia, we will hear about it. And if we don't find evidence that it was Russia, it'll be quiet. That's fair. <laughs> many many of us were wondering whether you knew something that that the rest of us mere mortals didn't. No, it was just my my individual joy and my 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 hopeful appreciation of our biggest ally. Well, as the uh, one of the few remaining rod explainers at AEI, it gave me a couple of days worth of uh, gymnastics. <laughs> so uh, explaining the Sikorsky sense of humor was always a, always a challenge. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for joining us, Radek. This was great fun. My pleasure. From Dalbo Rohaj. And Yulia Zoza. And Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Many thanks to our special guest today, Radek Sikorsky, former fellow at AEI. 
You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. Sign up for our newsletter, which will bring you uh, updates of newly released episodes, exclusive Q&As with your hosts, and you'll stay up to date with the most recent writings from the three of us. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.